HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so... I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Drag Brunch to me feels the way I wish church had felt when I was a kid. Like, it really does feel like something sacramental is happening when it's happening. You gather together as a community, you eat food together, Um, and you laugh together, um, and it feels less lonely in a community that is very at risk of being isolated, that is feeling a lot of pressure to be alone. This week, we're celebrating pride and recognizing some of the spaces and traditions that people in LGBTQ communities have created to fight back against that pressure. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. 2019 is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. While police raids of gay bars were common in the 1960s, it wasn't until the events that transpired in the early hours of June 28, 1969, that more people finally took notice of widespread discriminatory practices and began to slowly align themselves with the growing civil rights movement. 
But while Stonewall is seen by many as the beginning of a movement, the truth is it was one of many uprisings and likely wouldn't have had the effect that it did without the equally important events that it followed. Today, support for LGBTQ individuals has grown considerably, yet it's still far from absolute. On this episode of Meet and Three, we'll be taking a look at an often forgotten precursor to the Stonewall riots and then fast forward to today to share the magic of gathering around good food and drink to foster unity, support, and a strong welcoming network of people from all walks of life. Compton's Cafeteria was a, a cafeteria that was across the street here on Turk and Taylor. And it basically was an, uh, a cafeteria where people gathered. You know, the, it had transgender people, it had uh, LGBT people, it had hustlers. You go in and have a cup of coffee after, you know, being on the street all night. I'm Nico Whistler, and I'm the host of Queer the Table, a new show on the Heritage Radio Network that explores the places where queer identity and food intersect. All season long, we'll be talking about the importance of gathering in queer community to eat together. So it feels important to start by remembering that the right to do that visibly and in public space has been hard won. The first episode digs into the stories of three trans-led uprisings that all took place in late-night restaurants in the decade before Stonewall. I visited Colette Legrand in her dressing room at Aunt Charlie's Lounge in San Francisco's Tenderloin District to talk about the Compton's Cafeteria riots, which took place in the neighborhood in 1966. I was born in Missouri, and my mother and father got, oh, I don't know, whatever it was, divorce or whatever, when I must have been about three or four years old. So I, I really never saw my father again after that, so it was just my mother. And she was not a very demonstrative person you know what I mean and so I was left alone a lot by myself so my friend and I were one day were struggling I mean I I, even at 15 sort of knew I was different but I wasn't quite sure what and so my friend said well let's go to San Francisco you know and so we got off the bus and we wandered around and we said well where can somebody go around here to get a coffee and they said oh go to Compton's it's around the corner so we walked over there you know what I mean? And we went in there, and I felt comfortable the minute I walked in. I don't know why. They just had an atmosphere in there that, you know, like, this place is for people that don't quite fit. That's the first time I ever saw a transgender person. And for some reason or another, something clicked here, even though it took me a long time to get to that point personally, but something clicked. And I said, you know what? This place is a, kind of like a, a haven, if that makes any sense. So Compton's was a hangout, you know what I mean? So the cops felt they had a right to go in and tell people to get up and get out, you know. And the police were always hassling the girl, the transgender girls and the, and the street girls. So one night, I guess, there was just, they got fed up and they said, well, you know what, we're going to fight back. And they did. And uh, nowadays, uh Everybody thinks that Stonewall was really the beginning of the movement, but this happened a little a few years before Stonewall, so now there it's going back, getting the credit it, it deserves. I think it's time that they get the history because it's played a very significant part. Subscribe to Queer the Table wherever you get your podcast now, so that the first episode will be delivered right to you as soon as it's live. Happy Pride! Made me in the kitchen, what are we going to make? 
Thanks to the groundwork laid by places like Compton's, metropolitan centers like San Francisco and New York City today are lucky to have a bevy of options when it comes to safe gathering places for the LGBTQ community. Yet many of them are focused on nightlife and partying, which may not serve people who feel less comfortable in those environments, but are still looking for that warm, welcoming, and accessible place to go. For our next story, Aaliyah Papes takes us to Queer Soup Night. Queer Soup Night, in its essence, is a party. The party started in Brooklyn around two and a half years ago, and it happens every month. Before their June event celebrating Brooklyn Pride this year, I sat down with three of the people who make Queer Soup Night a reality. My name's Liz Alpern. Kathleen Cunningham. My name's Jennifer Martin. Queer Soup Night is a party, but Liz says it's more than that. We invite various chefs from the queer community to make soup, and folks come, they donate, and party and we have a great time, but all the proceeds go to a different organization each event. So it's a, it's a culinary event, it's a social justice-oriented event, and it's a queer community building event. Liz, Kathleen, and Jen started Queer Soup Night just after the 2016 election, under the shadow it had cast over many people in the LGBTQIA community. There was this need to, to have a space like this. I mean, you remember after the election... You really needed it. I mean, it was dark. It was a depressing time. So walking into a room full of queers serving you soup, I mean, it was like, oh, thank God. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's what it felt like. That feeling of urgency is still there. But Kathleen, who's usually stationed at the party's entrance, has seen it change shape over time. One of the really most special things about Queer Soup Night, I think, is that it really centers around... Resistance and helping to support people who are doing this difficult work on the front lines, whatever that beneficiary for that particular party might be. But it's really joyful and really positive. I think it's the kind of like magic thing that kept it going for so long is that people want to come together to celebrate one another. And the anger that I think all of us felt after the election, it's harder to maintain that over time in a way that can like bring us all together. I think like this party is something that helps translate that into some meaningful donations, but also into this kind of like loving, get closer to your people environment. Since the Brooklyn party began, people from other cities have reached out wanting to start their own chapters. Twin Cities is gonna have one, Minneapolis, and someone just reached out from Providence. We have a lot of people that reach out also and then don't necessarily follow up. And like, that's totally okay because you know you have to really want it because we don't actually have time. I think that the irony is that people think we're like trying to have as many things as we can because it would be great to have more and we are not are we are not driven by more. Yeah. More is not yeah. our goal. We're like how about less? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this got started at a coffee shop yeah. <laughs> with our house speaker. <laughs> it's true. The first queer soup night was at Pell's Pies in Brooklyn with the speaker from Liz's house, some friends, and some friends of friends. Since then, 10 other chapters have started across the country and even north of the border in Ottawa. The Brooklyn team provides some guidance, but the chapters are locally driven, started and led by people in that city. And even as it's grown, Queer Soup Night has stayed true to its coffee shop roots. Being in the food world, you go to these events, they're expensive, 
They are very curated. They Every dish is plated perfectly to perfection. Um, there's a delicate nature to them. And what I love about soup is that it is like immediately a down-to-earth food. And so what I feel about Queer Soup Night is that we're throwing this extremely high-level culinary event, but that is like so down-home and so opposite of any other culinary event. And you're getting chef-quality food. You're getting those beautiful garnishes. You're getting those flavors that are so exciting and alive but you've paid $12. And we, what we say is actually that you don't pay for the soup. You make a donation to the organization and then you go to a party where there's soup. And, and no one's turned away. If you don't have funds, it's fine. And that's why we don't, it's not ticketed. It's not like a normal culinary event where you have to think ahead and get your seat. Everyone has a seat. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after this short break. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine and Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine and Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, Fine and Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries, you get the idea. Above all, Fine and Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. Welcome back to Meet and 3 and the continuation of the Queer Soup Night story. I got to go to the Brooklyn Queer Soup Night this month. This party was a special one, celebrating Brooklyn Pride weekend at the new Nighthawk movie theater near Prospect Park. After the usual soup and mingling, there was also a performance and a screening of the 90s queer classic, But I'm a Cheerleader. While I was there, I talked to a longtime member of the Soup Night community, who told me what the event has meant to him. Queer Soup Night to me means a, a place for queer people to gather in community, that's a different kind of space that's not about partying, it's not about drinking, it's not all about sex. It's about coming together, supporting each other, and supporting causes that are really important to our community. And, and also nourishing ourselves with delicious soup. That word, nourish, kept coming up with the people I talked to about soup night, and I understood. The Brooklyn Pride event wasn't my first queer soup night. I went to one in February, as a person just starting to recognize myself as queer and trying to figure out what that meant to me. I wasn't sure where to start or whether I really belonged in queer spaces. But when I got to Queer Soup Night, I immediately felt welcomed and invited in. I felt like I belonged. There was good music, smiling people, delicious soup, vegan soup for me. And the money we gave at the door went to Immigrant Families Together, a grassroots organization that helps reunite families separated at the border. The founder of the organization was there and spoke about what had inspired her work. It felt like there were no barriers between us in the room. 
And it really feels like there's something about soup that makes that possible. I asked the Soup Night team what they thought. And here's what Jen Martin said. Soup, there's like no barrier, right? Anyone, anyone can make soup. Anyone can come to this party. Anyone can make a difference. And I think that really ties into it. I think there's a way to have it be the same and so different. We can have three soups and they're so different. And I think that is what Soup Night is. It's all that. Breaking bread and sharing soup really does build community. That may sound trivial or seem like a luxury at a time when so many LGBTQIA people face discrimination, harassment, and violence in ways both visible and hidden, in our country and around the world. But making community can be part of making change. Our health, our psychological health, is 100% contingent on feeling connected to other people. So it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter what your family life is, is like now, whether you're married, whether you're not, whether you're black, whether you're white. When we feel connected to people around us, we are healthier and more able to function in this harsh world. And so I think one of the most pressing issues that we have to deal with in a non-political way, but in some ways it is political, is making sure that we are feeling connected to our fellow queers in a way like I feel aligned with you and I feel safe with you and I feel like I can share something authentic with you. That foundation that we feel when we feel connected to other people actually allows us to fight for justice, to to make money so we can donate money, to, um, you know, to, to be a good friend or to stand up for somebody that we don't know anything about, but we know that they are being marginalized in this moment. So I really, I, I think there's a direct connection between us feeling connected to each other and loved and held and the work we can do in the world. For our last story, we are headed to the Great White North with reporter Pauline Munch. That's right, Meet and Three is in Toronto for a very special brunch. There's this place in Toronto called Glad Day Bookshop. And every Sunday, they have drag brunch. You can eat eggs and hash browns, drink coffee and mimosas, all while watching some pretty amazing performances. Hi, I'm Beardra Bidness, and I'm a drag queen. Yes, mama. And I'm Aaron Brockovich, and I host Drag Brunch every Sunday at Glad Day Bookshop. Glad Day is a thriving bookstore, restaurant, and event space located in the middle of the village, the historic home of Toronto's LGBTQ community. The space feels really welcoming. The walls are lined with books. There's tables and chairs scattered around the cute bar. But it wasn't always this way. I am Anthony Oliveira. Uh, I'm Glad Day's social media manager. Anthony first met me out front to tell me how Glad Day came to be. It is uh, long and important. It is the oldest surviving LGBT bookstore in the world. Um, it is the, I believe it's also now the oldest LGB, uh, the oldest bookstore, independent bookstore left in the world. Um, it was founded in 1970. Uh, it, um, it basically started life as a backpack that was uh, shuttled from queer party to queer party because it was so hard to get queer texts to the community. It became a fixture in Toronto's growing LGBTQ community. Until it ran into issues with the Canadian government. Glad Day's resources were depleted. It was effectively sued out of existence. Um, its employees were um, charged, given criminal charges. Our stock was pulped um, as pornography. Glad Day had to close its location and move a few blocks over. But there was an upside. 
the new space was bigger and had a kitchen, which gave Glad Day the opportunity to host events, shows, and parties. Still, Glad Day stayed just as progressive and socially conscious as the day it started. So it was only natural that the food and drinks served in their new spot did the same. My name is Leela, and I've just been recently hired as the new kitchen manager slash chef for Glad Day Bookshop. Leela takes sustainability seriously. She's been able to bring in loads of local and seasonal foods into her new menu. We're buying eggs from farmers just like not even an hour's drive from us, and it feels great. For Leela, it's important her food is available for everyone. So she's kept reasonable and fair menu prices. Because... It's not as accessible for a lot of people, especially in different parts of the world. And I don't want to make my food restricted to people of a a certain, you know, tax bracket. (laughs) Inclusivity is at the core of everything Glad Day does. It's part of the reason it's been around for so long. It's no wonder Drag Brunch reflects this as well. Here's drag queens Erin Brockovich and Beardra Bitness again. I think the nice part about drag brunch is that uh, it gives opportunity for people who don't necessarily like love nightlife at all to yes. like, get to experience drag. Like, there's families here with little kids. There's families here with like their teens that just like came out and are like trying to better understand themselves. Like, there's it's crowds that we don't get. Like, I always hear some sort of heartwarming, incredible story. Like, even, like, new trans people who are here who just felt like, after seeing the show, that they could, like, clearly be themselves and have, like, reached out to us on social media, Mm -hmm. which is, like, really lovely to just say, like, thank you. Now my parents kind of, like, understand the community that I'm a part of and understand me a little bit more and, like, realize it's, like, really not any different than any, any other day life. It's just, like, they just needed that, like, permission or that visibility to be able to, like, just be themselves. I love that. Yeah. Introducing the brunch crowd to drag has been a revelation. I chatted with bar manager Terrence, who told me more. Most of these performances have been undercover. Um, historically, they've been in the wee hours for a reason. Right. So to bring them out into the light of day is in some ways a relief. The queens stop at nothing to make themselves visible. They make a point to involve anyone passing by drag brunch. Often, this means literally jumping from the bookstore into the middle of the street during the show. It's a possible traffic violation, a possible bylaw violation, but that's also what drag is about. It's about causing a disturbance. It's about creating discomfort. It's about creating camp. It's about creating a spectacle. Glad Day and Drag Brunch seem to be a perfect match. And hosting the past three years, Aaron's never needed to compromise. They do love that it's at Glad Day in particular because I kind of get to be like politically radical in the things that I say and they're like, they like welcome it. I can talk about reproductive rights um, or trans rights or like um, remembering the people who like uh, fought for our community and fought for our rights way back when. The queens refused to censor themselves. Even when John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, was in the audience. Yeah, so John Tory was here. Uh, he was here last Sunday. And he, yeah, he came for the first seating and he tipped the queens and watched the show and we, we fucked with him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some lap dances. There were some lap dances. There were dances. some articles online. There were some conservatives that got very angry about him being at a drag show for Mother's Day. He like put a $5 bill in my, th- in, like, my bodysuit and like that went viral. Yeah. 
ish. Yeah. Viral in a bad way yeah. <laughs> for the conservatives. Yeah. yeah. Still, it's not easy. Here's Glad Day's social media manager, Anthony. It is a dangerous thing to assemble in queer spaces these days. We receive hate mail, we receive threats. Um, the mayor was here for a drag brunch the other day, and that was lovely, and it's so nice to see him come out for that, but there's been a deluge of online hate directed at us ever since, and it's such an important work that it's doing. Like, There are kids who are seeing it's okay to be different, and it's okay to be queer, and it's okay to be to not fit in, um, and it's okay to laugh about that difference and to, to laugh with somebody instead of have someone laughing at you. Um, that, to me, is what Drag Brunch is so important for. It's a show and a space that means so many things to so many people. Finally, it was time for me to eat some brunch and see the performance. Monday, she's going to close out the show for you, and then I'm going to close out the show for you. Give it up nice and loud for Mirko! That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Aaliyah Papes and Pauline Munch. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production for this episode by Oscar Belkin-Sessler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org or find us on social media as heritage underscore radio.